First Samuel chapter 14 and the verse 1. Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan the son of Saul said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father, and Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah. Upon a day, this chapter commences. In Paul's Hall of Faith, in Hebrews 11, he brought us, you recall, into many rooms where we've seen heroes of faith. Other rooms, he didn't bring us into them. He just noted the names on the doors. But you know, he didn't show us all the doors. And he didn't tell us all the names of the men and women of faith. He didn't cover every name. He admits that. He says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So it's obvious he didn't name everybody. There were so many in the cloud. In the Old Testament scriptures, one name certainly that he omitted and he might have mentioned is Jonathan. Jonathan is a man of faith. Now, how do you know a man of faith? That's the question. And there's only one way, and it's not by profession, merely. You know a man of faith by his works. As Jesus said, by their fruits ye shall know them. And you remember the great epistle of James? That's the epistle that deals with this matter of faith and the relationship to works. James said, What doth a prophet a man if he have faith? Or at least if he says he has faith, he professes faith and has not works, doesn't profit. Faith, if it have not works, is dead, being alone. True faith is manifested by works. That's how you know Abraham's faith was true. He offered up Isaac. That's how you know Rahab's faith was true. She hid and concealed the spies. So don't listen to anyone who says works aren't important. Or we don't need works. Or it doesn't matter how you live, as long as you have faith. You can't have faith without works. Works don't save, we know that. But the faith that saves works. It works. And it's manifested by works. So let's get rid of this nonsense. I can believe and live whatever way I like you can't. Your faith in your Savior won't let you do that. Faith works. Tonight I want to speak about the faith that works. Seen in the life of Jonathan. And compared with the barrenness of Saul. Jonathan had fruit. Saul didn't. 
Saul was barren. Saul had thorns. In Jonathan we see the fortitude of faith. We see a man who manifests virtues. The fruit of faith. But in Saul this other man. We see the paralysis of unbelief. And we see a man void of virtues. Filled with vices in his life. So the first works of faith displayed in Jonathan. The barrenness and the lack of works displayed and manifested in Saul. I'm comparing the two because that's what I think this chapter is doing. It's comparing these two men, Jonathan and Saul. And you see it at the start and it continues throughout, back and forth, a contrast between these two characters. There are really four pictures in the first half of the chapter, that that portion that we read. I like to call them videos. These are action shots. Certainly when you look at Jonathan, full of action. Maybe not so much when you look at Saul, not so much action. But there are camera shots. And the camera moves between Jonathan and Saul. Back and forth. So I'm not making this contrast and comparison up. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing. Then verse 1 we have the camera beginning on Jonathan. It's looking good when we see it there. Jonathan, he's speaking to his armor bearer. He says, come, let's go. Let's go over to these Philistines, this garrison, and let's deal with them. But then it goes to Saul, verse 2 and verse 3, and Saul, he tarried in Gibeah. So there's nothing good here in this camera picture shot in verses 2 and 3. No action. Stillness. And then the camera goes back to Jonathan again, verse 4, and that runs down to verse 15, a good long video shot of this man in action, Jonathan sought to go over onto the Philistines' garrison. So he moves into action with his armor bearer. He makes a great slaughter and there's a great move and God intervenes and there's a great slaughter among the Philistines as they begin to turn against themselves even in the confusion. And there's a great victory wrought. And Jonathan's at the heart of this. We see this routing of the enemy, this faith of action and works and as well as that words of faith he has the words and he has the works he has both of them and then in verse 16 we go back to Saul again and the watchmen of Saul they see what's happening the multitude are melting away and whatever is happening they're not sure and Saul he says number the people and then they find out Jonathan and his armor bearer are not there at long last they find that piece of information out. Not very good intelligence in that camp. And now Saul begins to, you know, he begins to get some action, but it's very late. And even then he still does foolishly because he, he puts the people under this rash vow that they're not to eat anything and all of that. And he just acts foolhardy. And it's a great contrast between the virtues and the works of faith of Jonathan on one hand and this folly and of this other man Saul on the other hand. A very striking 
contrast. And as I said, it begins with verse 1. The camera shot in verse 1, where we are tonight. Two points. The first is, this phrase, upon a day. We have to pause at that. It came to pass upon a day. You have to keep that in mind. Because the Holy Spirit has said it. There's a reason for it. Upon a day. And we have to ask, well, what kind of a day is this? And what is there about this day? What kind of a day is it? Now, the expression is unusual. In fact, this is the only occurrence of it in the English Bible. This is a certain kind of day. It came to pass upon a lot hung upon this day. This day did a lot of manifesting and declaring the hearts of men this day. A day can make a clear difference in a life. That day brought out the works of faith in one. But the same day brought out the exposure of a lack of faith in another. So it manifested one as a man of God and the same day exposed one as a hypocrite. Upon a day. It's not two different days. That's the thing. It's the same day. It was not a day when one has ease and the other has trial. One has it comfy and the other has it hard and difficult. No, the both of them had the trial. Saul and Jonathan. The both of them have the difficulties. The same difficulties. They both go through the same kind of day. Upon a day. Jonathan the son of Saul. Upon a day for the both of them. The same. That's what the Holy Spirit's bringing out here. Both have the trial. Both are in the same boat. Jonathan and Saul. As the camera goes between the both of them. It's the same day for them. There's a saying, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. It's not the kind of day that's really the problem. It's what the material is that's in the heart is the problem, is the matter. The heart's the heart of the matter, not the day, not the kind of day it is, whether it's a good day or a bad day, a hard day, a troublesome day, an easy day. That's not the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is in here. What's this heart going to be like when it faces a certain kind of day? Upon a day, Jonathan and Saul were seen into their hearts. Same day, but two different hearts. As I said, one day can make a powerful difference in a man's life. Just one day. So much depends upon a day. We don't know what a day may bring forth, the Bible says. We don't know. It will bring forth something. And you know where it will bring it forth from? Here, out of the heart. The day manifests the heart. The day brings out of the heart. The kind of day that it is. We don't know what it will bring forth. But it will and well, it's bringing forth stuff out of Jonathan's heart, and it's bringing forth stuff out of Saul's heart. The day will declare it. And this day is doing that. Oh, what kind of a day is it? Well, it's a tough day. 
that's for sure. It's the day of trial. It's the day of temptation. It's the day of testing. A difficult day. I'll just give you a recap. The Philistines are amassing. Multitudes of them. Thousands. In chapter 13, verse 5, what does it say there? The Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. That's just the chariots and the horsemen. 30,000 thereabouts. And people, as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude, the whole nation of Philistia has mustered their whole man force for this day. Upon a day, 30,000 plus. That's a day of trial. Israel, well, Israel had 3,000. But look at them now in this chapter, verse 2. We see there, the people that were with him were about 600. 3,000, which isn't very big in itself. I mean, if you had a congregation of 3,000 and reduced to 600, you may still have a big congregation, but your heart would be in your boots. You know, dwindling numbers. 3,000 to 600. What has happened to them all? Well, if you read the text and study through it all, you'll find that several things has happened. First of all, there were some who went and joined the Philistines. Well, we might as well join the, the, the conquering band and get our, get our neb in with the winners and save our lives. Maybe get a bit of promotion. The traitors who've joined Philistia who have, have skipped boats. And then there are others. They've gone and hid in the holes and the caves all around the different areas, hiding themselves because they know it's not going to be a good job for Israel. That's how they feel. They want to save their lives. So they're hiding away in the holes. The boat's empty. And then we're told that there were many, many of them even crossed over the Jordan and went away far off as far away as they could get. They have left. So it's, it's a day when they've been abandoned. The church, the congregation has dwindled to a small number. A day of dwindling numbers. That's the kind of day we're in now. Dwindling numbers. The people of God are abandoning the ship. They're leaving the churches. They're flying. They want to have more aids. They don't want to be facing the opposition. They don't want the separated stand. They don't want to be in the minority. So they abandon the ship. Off they go. And those that remain, their hearts are in their boots, trying to cope with this day, unless they have faith. Jonathan. It's a day of the multitudes of the men of the flesh. In the Bible, one of the names for the Philistines is the uncircumcised. They didn't even call the Canaanites the uncircumcised. It's the Philistines who are the uncircumcised. They're the men of the flesh. They're the men of the world. And they're growing and Becoming a vast multitude. And they have all the technology. They have all the chariots. They have all the horses. They have all the weapons of warfare on their side. They are strong and mighty and powerful. 
And as the people in the boat, look at this, they, they abandoned the boat because of the world. The size of the world, the, the intensity of the opposition, the numbers. We are in this day when we're surrounded by multitudes, multitudes of ungodly. That have all the technology and all the skills and all the abilities and all the financial resources set against the church of Jesus Christ. Upon a day, and this is the day that we are in. We're in these days now when we're outnumbered, outmaneuvered, outpowered. There's something else about these days. It's a day when the, the body has no weapons. Because what does it say there at the end of chapter 13? It came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and with Jonathan, his son was, was there found. Do you see that? The Philistines have so worked the society, they've been so influential in this area of Israel that they've taken the weapons off the very people and for years the people have had to go to the smiths down in Philistia to get their bits and pieces sharpened and worked with and the only ones who have the weapons are Jonathan and Saul. Make them weaponless. If they're weaponless, they're powerless. But what contrasts or parallelism might we think in our modern society? Well, there is a push in our society you know, the ministers, they can preach the word in the church. They can wield the sword in the church. Let Jonathan and Saul, let them keep their swords. Let them have the sword. Let them have the word. But don't you be bringing it into the factory. And don't you be bringing it into the school, you people, you ordinary people. You're not allowed to have it in the school. You're not allowed to witness in the social work. You're not allowed to be a cure who mentions the Bible. Keep it out. We're secular here. The Bible's for church. It's not for the job, not for the factory, not for the school, not for parliament. But let me tell you it is. The Bible's for all of society. And a society that doesn't have the Bible is a society in darkness and confusion and is going to go to utter ruin. So, you know, let Jonathan and Saul, the ministers, they can preach away in their churches, but don't be letting their people have the Bible among us. And so the, the, the society is so working things that they're just going to keep it in the church, in the pulpit, private. Your religion's your own private thing for church. That's, that's the philosophy of this age. But don't do God outside. God's a private thing in your house or in your church or in whatever we synagogue or whatever we meeting place you have. Stays in there. That's, that's a wrong philosophy. That is not a God-glorifying philosophy. We'll not have open our preaching. We'll ban it. So you see, that's the kind of day it is. And the churches are empty. Um, I have to say to many of the people of God who are getting discouraged, their hearts are in their boots. Where's your faith? What are you doing? Do you feel like fleeing? 
Do you feel like going where it's bigger and where there's more greater and there's more worldly and more acceptable to the world? And this kind of a day, will we be like Jonathan or will we be like Saul? Will the day bring the best out of us or the worst? What will it be? These are days of testing us, brethren and sisters. And how often do these days of testing and trial bring out the worst in people, really, and maybe even the worst in us? It's very often it's been the case we had a bad day and we've become a bad saint. I'm sure we're all guilty of that, to a greater or lesser degree. Upon a day, what a difference a day can make then. It was a day of persecution. And I wonder if upon a day that happened to us, a day of persecution, how would it fare with us? If there was a day, upon a day, there was men come in here, through those doors, burst their way in here, men with authority, men with weapons, men with power. If they burst in through those doors or upon a day and came in here, started up at the pulpit, worked their way down, deny Christ, and you go home safe with your family. Refuse to do that, refuse to deny your Lord, refuse to blaspheme, you'll all die, including your little ones. Now, thankfully, God saves us from these trials and tests because he doesn't let us suffer beyond that which we are able, bless his Lord, which is why we don't have really much valid physical persecution these days because the Lord knows we're not great stickers of that. But what if it happened? And it has happened in places of the world, in communist countries and other places. It has happened. People have made a, had to make a choice right on the spot and face death. Upon a day. What if that come upon us? What would it bring forth in us? Would it bring forth the virtues of faith? Would they come out? Fortitude especially. Like this man Jonathan has. He has fortitude. One of the greatest of the virtues. Or would it be the, just the, the, the cowardice. And the abandonment of unbelief. So that's a question to probe. The second thing I point out, and of course I hardly need to tell you this, these two men, Jonathan and Saul, are related. They're related. Jonathan is the son of Saul. Now you're saying, why are you telling us that, preacher? That's so simple. That's so basic. Why are you even telling us that at all? Don't waste your time on that point. But you see, that's what the text says. Upon a day, Jonathan, the son of Saul. It's the Holy Spirit that draws attention to the relationship, not the preacher tonight. The Holy Spirit points it out. This man of faith, this man of action, this man who goes over there on his own with his armor bearer only, he's the son of Saul who's sitting under the pomegranate tree. The Holy Spirit points out the relationship. The text stresses it at this particular day. And the Holy Spirit does that in order to make the contrast between these two the more striking 
The one is the son of the other. We might expect them both to be the same. The same house, the same family, the same blood, similar environment, similar circumstances, similar DNA. But they're not the same. They're not the same. One is good, the other's not. One has faith, the other has not. One has lively faith, great faith, growing faith, encouraging faith, and the other hasn't. One has good works, the other hasn't. The one is wise, the other is foolish. The one has virtues and a virtuous life, and the other one doesn't. One's getting better, the other's getting worse. And what is more, it's Jonathan that is the virtuous one. The lesser. The son of Saul. The younger. The offspring of what should be the greater. We expect the king to be better. Didn't he seem to start off well? Didn't we think, oh, this is a Messiah-like character. He's anointed. Everything's looking well. He even has that initial victory and he saves the people. Oh, it's looking so good. But it all goes flat, as it does with all of these people. Because it goes flat with everybody until the true Christ comes, Messiah. That's how the the Bible prepares us for Christ. This is what the Old Testament is all about. Is this Christ? Could this be him? Could this be the last Adam? Could this be the one who brings us to the salvation? And they all fall flat. Until he's born in Bethlehem. Jesus. So we expect the king to be better. We expect the father to be better. We expect the older to be more virtuous. But it is not so. And we're shocked. At least we ought to be. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to be. He wants us to be shocked at this. It's the son of the king who's the better. He's not even anointed. And we're shocked. That's how we're meant to feel here. Shocked. We expected so much of Saul. We thought it would have been him that had delivered Israel. How do we explain this difference? Jonathan better than Saul. How do we explain that? Paul asked the Corinthians a good question one time. Actually, it was, a, it was a whole series of questions. It was three questions. But the first one was, Who maketh thee to differ? Who maketh thee to differ? So we're asking, why, why, why the difference? And the question is, who? It was a person who made the difference. Who made thee to differ, Jonathan? That's a great question, brethren and sisters. And that's a question we have to ask ourselves all the time. Every day. Especially if we would get proud. Especially if we would get puffed up and think we're it. And there's nobody like us. We have to say, who who made you to differ? Or maybe we feel weak and unable. And so many more are so better and greater. And we make it jealous. Jealous. Envious. And we have to remind ourselves, look. Don't be at enmity with God. By your envy. 
Who made you to differ? It's God. So envy and being envious is a someone battling not just with the person who they envy, but with the God who has made us different. And give him the, the better position, the better gifts, the greater ability. God. God's goodness. God's grace. So th- this is a verse I think we really have to ask ourselves all the time. Who makes you to be different? Don't forget about God in your life. Never forget about the Lord. He raises one and he brings down others. as all due to God. And so if we're asking here, why, why is Jonathan better than Saul? The answer is it's God. It's, it's his Savior that has made the difference. It's the Savior's grace and his providence that has made the difference. And that should keep us humble and that should keep us from envy. And it should also make us cry unto God and say, Lord, more of your grace in my life. More of your grace, Lord, for me. We have to remember the grace of God, brethren and sisters. It does it all. It's down to the Lord. So why is Saul lying under a pomegranate tree and Jonathan is going out there battling? It's because of the Lord's grace in his life. So we have to remember this. It's not always father like father like son. This chapter rules that out. The Lord can make a difference for the better. Praise this name. And may do so in all our lives. Make a difference for the better for us. Paul, we know, was a great man of faith. And consequently also of works. A great man of works. And he had no doubt of the cause of it all. And of the reasons for it. Because he said to the same church. Corinthians. By the grace of God. I am what I am. And his grace. Which was bestowed upon me. Was not in vain. But I laboured more abundantly than they all. Yet not I. But the grace of God which was with me. So he's telling us it was God's grace. God's grace made the mighty apostle. And that's why the greatest need for us is to pray for God's grace in our lives. More and more of it. Brothers and sisters, only the Lord can change us. Only the Lord can make us better than our Father. Only the Lord can make us more godly. Only the Lord can perfect us. Only the Lord can increase our faith. And consequently our godliness. It's only the Lord can do this. We must never forget God. And may the Lord remind us of this. And whenever we see people like Saul. Not to become self-righteous. And to you know, you know, look down on them and despise them. But, but to praise God for his grace in our lives. And to pray that the Lord would. Give Saul grace. Give the sinner grace. Your grace has saved us. And we thank God for that. And we are humbled by that. But we pray that that grace may reach others. At least that's how we ought to pray. How we ought to think. How we ought to feel. That's the right approach. There but for the grace of God go I. 
You've heard that expression quite a bit. And it's a great debate about where did it originate and who is it first connected with. And it's reckoned that it can be traced to the reformer John Bradford. Because it was John Bradford who was watching a group of criminals being brought to the execution. And John Bradford is supposed to have said, There but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. And that's, that's the right attitude. All that Jonathan is, and all that Jonathan obtains, and all that he does, is of God. It's of the Lord. Verse 23, chapter 14. The Lord saved Israel that day. It was the Lord who did it. But we know that Jonathan was, was his instrument. So it was the Lord that made the difference. It was the Lord who, who worked in this young fella. And Saul meditating under the pomegranate tree, not him, but Jonathan. Jonathan. God's grace makes a difference. May the Lord give us grace. Grace that not only saves us, but that sanctifies us and that makes us better. Let me add also, because there's another side to the coin. It's not just that grace makes a difference. In Jonathan's life it did. But there's another side to the coin. Satan can make a difference too. Upon a day. Satan upon a day can make a difference too. Yes. Don't forget that. Saints get better. By the grace of God through trials and adversities. Through the grace of God they get better. They come out of the fire as gold. But in the adversities as the devil brings them. The wicked. They get worse. They get worse. And they get exposed. And they go on and on to destruction. So sinners get worse. By Satan and by sin. But saints get better. By grace. God's grace. You see, vice and virtue, good works, bad works, whatever, vice, virtue, that's how the old church fathers used to talk about the seven vices, the seven virtues. Vice and virtue are never stationary. They never stay in the same place. They're always on the move. They're always advancing. They're always growing. They're always increasing. Vice and virtue multiply in the person saints get better sinners get worse and Saul is a classic example of the latter as I said in the past he's an enigma we can't really get to the bottom of him the scripture doesn't give us a whole picture and we must be careful how we judge him be careful to say well he's lost and he's in hell the Bible doesn't tell us that but it doesn't look good I have to say it doesn't look good. He's a man who waxes worse, as far as we can see. And that's never a good sign when a man waxes worse and gets himself into a state where he just gets worse and worse and worse. That's why a root of bitterness must never get into us. Because it'll make us worse and worse. And it's sad to see an old man in old age, a nasty person, a bitter person, a man who's just filled with bitterness and anger. I think that's awful. 
to see an old man just, you know, just vomiting out bitterness. By old age, grace should have made us gracious like the Lord. Think of Judas. Just look at him getting worse and worse and Satan entering into him at the end completely pushing him over the edge. And what was his problem? What was his face? It's one of the greatest faces of society. It's like a wolf that devours. And it's one of the greatest because it affects everybody. The, the people who have faces because they get the top post in government, they become ministers, and there are certain faces that are peculiar to their position. But there's a face that affects men of every position and every level. And it's greed. It's the face of greed. And that was Judas's face. It was greed. And the Bible reveals that about him. Some people have got confused about Jesus. What, what was he doing? What was he about? Very simple. He was greedy. He couldn't get enough. He had that vice that was never conquered, that was never satisfied. Covetous and greed. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Congregation, we stand in the grace of God. And in the constant need of it. And that's why the minister at the end of the church service what does he say? Every church service practically, what does he say? What is the prayer that we leave this place with ringing in your ears? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The grace that makes us to differ. The grace that saved us. The grace that keeps us. The grace that sanctifies us. The grace that leads us on. And we must also pray for the increase of faith. We must think of our Lord's word that he said one time. Where's your faith? You could go to Saul under the pomegranate tree and that's what the Lord is saying. Saul, where's your faith? Why is it you have no faith? Doesn't the Bible even say examine yourselves whether you be in the faith? Prove your own selves. Don't wait for the day to show it. Don't wait for upon a day. Because there are days of trial coming to us. Days of difficulty. We'll wake up one morning and this word upon a day will take a new meaning to us. But let us examine ourselves and prove ourselves without having to wait for a day to declare it. James spoke about the trying of our faith. It will be tried upon a day. We will rise upon a day and our faith will be tried upon a day as we go into the furnace and may it be in God's grace be found for us that our faith will come forth as gold. Oh may God give us his grace. And let's really pray that God's grace will be in our lives and in our congregation and amongst the flock here, amongst us all,